You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Hertz here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are here in our second week discussing Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club, chapters 34 to 63, I think. It's a lot of chapters. That's the highest numbers we've ever had of chapters in an episode, I think. Do we know why there are so many chapters? Like, I'm not adverse to long books or even books with lots of chapters in them. This isn't even a long book. I know, but that's the thing, right? It's a standardly sized... Standardly sized, standard sized. Arguably small. Yes, it it flies by because uh, the pages often just cut off because of the end of the chapter. Yes. So it's even shorter than a book that would normally be 300 pages long, however much this is, your edition. But uh, Richard Osmond has decided to split these up into chapters that are five pages long, four pages. Yes. It's very bizarre. I, I respect the choice a lot because. I think when you get to a book of this length, Mm. uh, there's often the temptation to tie the chapters over by some thematic idea rather than by an actual scene, which tends to be what you get in chapters in smaller stories. But Richard Osman has gone for scenes with just a very short, tight focus. You're in, you have your moment, and it's done. So the entire book feels very efficient about how it uses every set piece. It's very interesting, uh, speaking from someone who enjoys a snappy transition or a transition that is, you know, we end one scene focusing in on the pin that we've uncovered in the grave. And then we transition to the pin on the butler's shirt because he's got the same pin and it means something. Whoa. But there's none of that in this story. Well, not none, but mm-hmm. it's significantly reduced because we have the freedom to just jump from one, you know, completely unrelated place to the next. Yes. Um, it keeps the pace in a very snappy way that I actually, I really enjoy. Now, if you're not following on, let's just do a brief recap. Oh, yeah. So in this stretch of chapters after the (laughs) death of one Tony Curran, Uh the investigation is on the Thursday Murder Club, is around and prepared and manipulating anything and everything to get their good friend, Police Constable Donna DeFreitas, onto the scene. Mm -hmm. And uh, the investigation can't really seem to find a terrible lot. No, they get pretty stuck. Um, in fact, they still seem to consider Ian Ventham as their number one suspect, which isn't necessarily a problem considering what happens to him in this stretch of the chapters. <laughs> we could still technically pin the, the first murder on him, but it's kind of difficult for them to pin him down, especially considering his alibi. It's yeah. only, you know, barely possible for him to be at the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he dies. Then is, he dies. Which is the best part. Not only does Ian to, Ventham die, Ian Ventham dies yes. in public, in yep. the full view of, of almost... Six, 60 people. Yeah, of yeah. almost Se- every resident, two yes. police officers and a and a father outside Cooper's chase. Yes. And no one good. can explain it. It's very good. I like it a lot as a setup for a, for a murder, mm-hmm. that it just happens. Because it's a, a, what we like to call a, a moderately fast-acting poison. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in the biz of murder mystery. It's uh, fentanyl, I believe, is the drug that's actually yes. used. It's an opioid and like pain medication, but in high doses, it can it can kill you, mm-hmm. uh, as outlined by John, who is the husband of, of Penny, who's, of yes. course, you know, part of the, the Thursday Murder Club. A former vet as well. Yeah, of course. And the, the thing that I really love about the delivery of Ian's death is how little warning you get about it. Mm -hmm. Unlike many other murder mysteries, there are no flags warning of an impending doom. (laughs) It's just that Ian Ventham has a little stoush with uh, with Father Mackey. Everyone kind of grabs them and they all tussle and Mm -hmm. make sure that they don't actually come to blows. 
And then Ian Ventham starts huffing and walking back to his car. Yeah. And then his narration just gets really, really weird. It gets really weird and dislocated. And I, I really love the subversion of expectations here because you would expect that in the moment where blood is getting hot and people are moving back and forth in this like big crowd with, with Mackie and with Ian, that one of them's going to kill the other or something crazy is going to happen. Yeah. But the crazy thing doesn't happen until a little bit afterwards. So we have time to kind of say... You know, what What happened there? Let's unpack that scene a little bit. Oh, wait, Ian's dead. Yeah. Oh, that's a problem. It, it goes back to that comment we were making right at the start of this episode about how well it paces out its small scenes because you get these tiny little doses, pun intended, of what's happening in the story. So each mm. feels like an individual breath. Yeah. An individual thought almost, I yeah. feel like in the hive mind that is this story. And while this is all going on, Bogdan is over <laughs> just minding his time digging yes. in the graveyard near yeah. Cooper's chase that uh, Ian Ventham <sighs> is there to try dig up with large machines and no care in the world. Yeah, he finds in one of the graves and... Next to one of the graves. Next to, he finds two bodies. Well, he finds one body that is in a casket, I believe, in other words, like on top of it. Yeah. That's my understanding of the situation, which is very bizarre. And um, the, the one that is outside the casket is clearly a lot less decomposed, yes. a lot whiter bones. Yes. It, it implies, based on my own, you know, forensic knowledge, you know, that's my special course. Forensic knowledge uh, that, that they were killed a lot longer after the, the first person <laughs> was uh, was deceased. That, is, is that awesome. does seem to be the implication. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, where we've ended is just after Bogdan has come to Elizabeth, who has... Uh, ingratiated herself to Bogdan by posing with the same <laughs> as name his as his mother. mother. It's ridiculous. Fantastic moment, ridiculous. but you can read so that silly. for yourselves. So much stuff happens in these chapters. So he, much stuff. He plays chess with a man named Stephen who Elizabeth's been like looking after. and who, who, made the, who was presented to us as basically comatose from Elizabeth's perspective. Yes, but we also got a note from much earlier in the novel saying that even though Elizabeth is like the best at chess, Stephen's even better. He's better than the grandmasters. Yeah. And we get this moment where Bogdan like beats him and he looks at Elizabeth and Stephen says, well, he beat me Fair and square, Elizabeth. I mean, Marion. Like, it's clear that there's like more going on in Stephen's head than we get yeah. a window into, which is really cool. It's it's really lovely and very much plays into the themes of the novel in terms of the elderly people being a lot sharper than yeah, people, people expect. Underestimated. The other thing I wanted to pick your brain on her. Oh, always. That uh, someone who's been reading alongside the show, a, a good friend of ours. Who, I, I know who it is. Yes, yep. you know who okay. it is. What is Pointed this out, awful question? Let's raised go. the question when they were at this point in the novel that they were concerned that PC Donna. Fritas was going to end up with her much older, much fatter I thought boss. that too. I didn't want to talk about it, but here we are. So here's the problem. Here's the problem in my brain, my thoughts, before we get too much into what anybody else thinks. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to happen, but there was a moment before I realized, because I didn't even realize until last time we sat down to talk about the show, yeah. that Donna DeFridis was 25. I thought she was much older. So in my head, I was going, oh, would that be fun? They could like hang out and go on dates and stuff. And then I realized that one of them is 50-something and the other's 25, and I thought, hmm, that's that's not so good, yeah. uh, I felt. I, I don't want to say anything of how it continues, <laughs> and perhaps I've already led the witness a bit too much by even raising this point. I, mm. um, but I did want to uh, kind of talk about how interesting it is that something that could feel off-putting in that way was put forwards in the book without really yeah. establishing the terms of it. For sure, for sure. Because I think that if it resolves well, Yes. then it could actually end up having a very satisfying payoff and ta- sure, talking about sure. the work dynamics, which has been a 
kind of background noise yeah. element of the I mean, police in look, this story. We can see in the story that that uh, Chris Hudson has a good sense of humor and he gets on well with Donna. Yeah. And Donna is also having trouble dating people because of how obnoxious they are and how like above the clouds they are in terms of their thinking. Yeah, the, she is very practical and yes, very dedicated. Which is sort of similar to how, how Chris is. Mm. So in, in a personality way, I could see them you know, going together and we'll see how the novel kind of goes forward yeah. and how they kind of match. But as you say, that difference in, in person and, mm. and, and, you know, physical makeup could be an issue. I feel like this relationship is, it's, it's between two secondary characters. Yeah. So it's, it's less in focus, a little bit more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I'm excited to see how these go with the two yeah. of them. I suppose the other thing and why I wanted to talk about this now before uh, before anything else <laughs> is that sure. so much of the rest of the book so far has just been consistent. Mm. In terms of volume of text, we actually have the majority of the book left to go. Yes. There hasn't been a very even split because the later chapters are a bit longer. Yes, well, I mean, the book is divided into two parts. If you really wanted to set a hard line on the murder mystery, you might even cut it at part one and yeah. say, so what are your predictions um, so I actually, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in the oh, next section. Oh no, you're scaring me now. But I mean, obviously with there being two murders, it's mm-hmm. a bit finicky there. Yeah. So it'll be good to pick your brain on that when we get to the end of the show. But u- ultimately, if you've heard our thoughts from the previous episode, which is of course up on the podcast, if you've missed it. Go listen to it. Uh, it's good. And I, I think that it's just staggeringly consistent. Yeah. There are lots of interesting moments and lovely character details that I absolutely loved, but... It is a well-executed joke that is nowhere close to wearing itself thin. Are you about to tell me that the craziest half of the story is yet to come? Is that where you're leading this discussion? No, I just wanted to justify why I brought up what is actually kind of a weird point on the show. I wanted to make clear that the the reason is is that I feel like we've made the rest of our criticism in the previous episode. Okay, good, good, good. Just make sure. Anyhow, we are going to jump over to that mystery discussion towards the tail end of today's show. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Herds here discussing Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club on the show today. Right now, I'm joined on the line by RJ Chowdhury, tech entrepreneur, theater director, and now author of a 2021 crime thriller known only as The Waiter. RJ, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fantastic. On the show today, we have been chatting uh, about The Thursday Murder Club, which is a novel about uh, a group of old folks who use the fact that they are underestimated by the people around them, the police trying to further the case, the other old folks in the home to, to further their detective efforts. So, RJ, how have you written the protagonist of your novel, uh, that being Mr. Carmel Rahman, uh, so that he can be underestimated by many of the characters in his life um, as part of the investigation, the story, but but not so much by the reader. How do you kind of balance that? So, so Carmel used to be a, he used to be a cop in the Calcutta Police Force, uh, where he was investigating the murder of a rich uh, Bollywood star who got killed in a hotel. But he finds it to be a very murky thing. He gets pulled into all kinds of corruption and finally gets fired from the Calcutta Force, and he ends up dealt between his legs in London as a waiter in this restaurant I was talking about, where he gets involved in a, in a, in, a, in another murder. Um, so from, from a reader's perspective, you know, to get into Carmel's head, it was very interesting. When I first wrote the book, I actually wrote it in the third person, uh, as, as a lot of books are written. But I found that I had exactly the same problem you were alluding to, which is as a reader, yeah. I felt slightly distanced from him. 
Uh, so one marathon night, um, I actually changed everything to the first person. Uh, and it actually suddenly pinged. Suddenly I was in Carmel's head. Uh, and because of that, I could kind of feel what he was feeling, see what he was seeing. Uh, and the book's very funny. So, he, you know, I think anyway, so he has a lot of. I agree. Stuff. I will back that. <laughs> uh, you, you know, and because he's a bit of a fish out of the water in the UK, having come from Calcutta, there's a lot of stuff he kind of gets wrong because he doesn't really understand how things work. And being in his head just kind of, you know, makes the reader feel that as well. And then as the kind of murder mystery progresses, you kind of see his thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that that made a massive difference. I guess, I mean, we've sort of already, again, we've alluded to this, that the detective fiction really is a genre that lends itself well to that idea of self-insertion, of really getting inside the head of the protagonist, of the detective, uh, in this case, Kamal Rahman, who, as you mentioned, has moved over from, from Kolkata, from India, into to the UK. Uh, and you can feel, uh, the, the audience can kind of feel like a genius while discovering secrets that truthfully were designed to be revealed. You know, when you write a murder mystery, you're designing the the person who's done the murder to be found out by the end. So, so RJ, how do you balance the audience's kind of the fantasy of being this underestimated detective who's going to show everyone up um, while writing a character who feels very, very real and distinct, um, particularly uh, how uh, Carmel has a very strong sense of his, his own Indian heritage and the fact that he's a non-practicing Muslim and this sort of affords him a, a unique perspective. So I guess, yeah, how, how do you balance the idea of, of self-insertion with creating this very distinct character? Yeah, um, so so from, from an audience perspective, it, you know, I'd never written one, one of these before, So, but I'd read a huge amount of detective fiction. I'm a massive fan of detective fiction. And, 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 and the best detective stories I found, at least when I was reading them, was where... I was kind of maybe one or two steps slightly ahead of the of the protagonist. Okay, sometimes it was amazing where you read a book and you go, wow, I just did not see that coming. And, and that that's super cool. Where it's terrible is where you go, oh, I kind of knew who the killer was, you know, 150 pages ago. Why didn't you figure why didn't you figure that out? Why is this book 500 pages long? Yeah, totally. Well, exactly. Or when someone says, and the killer is, you know, Jay. And you go, who's Jane? And <laughs> a few books like just suddenly made an appearance. So keeping the reader just a few steps ahead of Carmel is really important. Um, I did read a lot of um, books about how to write books, detective stories, I'll be honest. Uh, and there were some great you know, ideas there about you know, how do you use red herrings, or how do you use um, other characters and so on and so forth. Uh, and then putting it all together. But ultimately, at the end of the day, frankly, it was a book that I felt I would want to read and I would be interested in. It's really hard to keep a mythical reader in mind because there's so many different types of readers. Uh, and I'm just really lucky that it seems to have resonated uh, with a lot of people. No, I mean, I, I've read the book, as I said, from from start to finish, and I definitely felt as though I had a great a measure of, of sympathy towards Camille, um, not to sort of spoil the, the ending of the novel, but some of the decisions that he's forced to make. And the way that it's it's not just about the clinical nature of, of of the crime, right? It's not just about the puzzle. It's about how do the decisions that that Carmel makes kind of affect the people around him. You know, I think was very was very interesting. Um, now, I, I have to ask: there are many characters in in the story who actually have authority over our our waiter detective. Uh, Camille Rahman. There's the rich restaurant patrons who order him around. Um, Camille's own father, who holds this like shadow over his existence the entire book. Um, and in a previous life, uh, the deputy commissioner of the the police that he was kind of working under when he worked his first case. 
Um, I, I want to to ask how much authority can Carmel kind of seize back by doggedly pursuing the truth of the cases that he gets involved in? Uh, that, that's an, 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 another great question. The reality is, look, he's 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 pretty. Uh... Um, you know, he's in his 20s uh, in Kolkata. It was his first big case. He was understandably incredibly nervous about it, but very proud. And as you mentioned, his father had been the commission of police. So he had big, big boots to fill uh, over there. Um, so and he was very hesitant about his own abilities. But, you know, as, as the case progressed, I think he felt that, I guess I do know what I'm doing. He went down a few rabbit holes sometimes, but he did know what he was doing. And, and when he came back, when he came to the UK, he was completely down because from his perspective, he had failed in India uh, and he didn't want to uh, get into the murder case in the UK at all because he'd failed. And there's another great character who I'm absolutely in love with, Kolanjali, uh, who's uh, the daughter of the people he's staying with, who's kind of his sidekick. She's lovely. Uh, and she's the one who kind of pushes him to, to, to really do it. Uh, and between them, he gains his mojo back and he gets his confidence back to be able to do it. But, you know, in India, there is a real culture of looking up to your seniors, as they call them, you know, whether it's uh, your elders or people up in the job, uh, which is probably less so in, in, in the West or in Australia. Um, and, and that's something he has to adjust to. Now, this is the book is the first of a series. Um, and, you know, the second one is called The Cook and it's coming out next year. And then there's a third one called The Detective where he actually becomes a cop uh, in, the, in, the, in the Met Police, uh, you know, which is, which is coming out after that. And, and you do see the arc. So I very much wanted an arc for Kamal and Anjali, you know, to kind of see how they develop over these books. Yes, he has a lot of setbacks and so on and so forth. And his innate, you know, goodness remains there. But, but you know, he, he, he's got to push against stuff. That, that, that's where his strength comes from. No, for sure. I mean, he has such huge obstacles to overcome both personally and through, as I mentioned, the authority figures that he has to deal with. Um, and Camille, he he pursues the cases in the novel because he has a strong sense of justice, right? Um, and again, without spoiling how the novel ends itself, um, he ends up kind of establishing this very clear personal code, which I assume is, you know, for the, the further stories in the saga of, of Camille Roman, right? Um, but it is almost a code that is alien to the people around him. Um, there are many detective stories, I think, that deal with the gap between there's the word of the law on one side and a pure sense of justice on the other. How have you created this protagonist, Camille, um, with a, a nuanced moral code without making them seem uh, inconsistent uh, to the reader? It was pretty hard to do in, in, in some ways because it's not just seem inconsistent. I mean, there's a danger he can also come across as a bit wishy-washy, um, you know, which I didn't want to do because the guy, as you said, you know, does believe in a lot of stuff. Um, and, and ultimately, it's, it's about the reader putting, as you said right from the beginning, putting themselves in Carmel's shoes and saying, what would I do in a situation like that? So when Carmel has these moral dilemmas, what's always been important for me is for the reader to think, you know, I would probably do the same thing. Where books fall apart is when people do things that are completely illogical and you kind of go, well, why on earth would they do that? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. They're best when someone does something and you go, why did they do that? Ah, I see why they <laughs> did that. <laughs> you know, when it kind of hits you a little bit later, are kind of the best. But but yeah, it's really important for readers to think that 
yeah, I might do the same thing if I was stuck in that horrendous situation. And yeah, no, it's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you, RJ. Uh, this has been Herds uh, of Death of the Reader in a discussion with RJ Chattery about his debut crime thriller novel, The Waiter. Thank you very much for coming on to chat, RJ. Thanks for having me. Has really enjoyed it. Stay tuned in just a minute for more of Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Richard Osmond's The Thursday Murder Club, chapters 34 to 63. A pretty long stretch of chapters that isn't actually too intimidating, given how short they were, as we were discussing at the start of the show today. And Herds, just before we ended our discussion of the story at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that there are two murders that have happened. There we are. spoke about Ian Ventham's death, and you mentioned how that could be a bit finicky for the murder mystery. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you... (laughs) I only have too many things to answer. What's this new question? Whose murder do you think we're trying to solve by the end of this book? Is it both? Is it just one of the two? Is one of them going to be unveiled to us on the very next pages? What do you think? Okay, that's a broad question. You give me a lot of options to work with there. I mean, I... Here's the thing. I feel like... I feel like I'm pretty uh, on the nail on the head with, with the first murder from last week, although I do always have... More theories to pose yes, to you, of To course. recap you, Tony Cohen was I, clubbed, o- clubbed over the head with a heavy object. Yeah, Tony was clubbed over the head with a heavy object, and Elizabeth did a really good job of outlining all the reasons why uh, Bogdan might have done it, mm-hmm. and all that we got out of him was saying, ah, yes, Ian did not order, order me to do that, of course. Yeah. Which is, anyway, we'll move on from that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like... The true mystery of this story is probably that skeleton that we found, the Mm -hmm. skeleton in the closet in the grave. Uh, I think that all of these other murders are here to sort of justify the, like, forward momentum of the novel leading to the point of the discovery of, like, what's in the cemetery. I think that's going to be, like, the thrust of the rest of the story. Now you're suggesting to me that there are three murders to solve? Probably. And are you also suggesting that I haven't given you clues for at least one and a half of them? Yes, Oh so here's the, here's the thing, right? I feel, I have felt, as I have been moving through this story, I feel like I have a really good handle on the who and the how. Yes. The why is eluding me, and I don't know if it's because I'm out of practice or because the clues are just not there and they're going to be revealed as part of this skeleton possible murder, which is what it seems but, like. Because sometimes, sometimes when the mafia murders someone, they dig up an old grave and they stick a body on top of it. They go, that's part of the same grave. It's fine. Nobody will check there because there's already a body there. You say the who and the how is though that it's the same for all of the murders. Uh, I don't think so. I think there are multiple culprits. Oh. That said, I have I have a due diligence a, a due diligence yes. to commit. Uh, I need to give you an alternate answer, I think, for the previous murder. That you do. That you do for the second point. And obviously the story in this part, Herds, has laid the uh, the shackles heavily upon Jason Ritchie. That's garbage. Given that he no, doesn't have gar- an that's, alibi and that's was supposedly at the scene no, of the crime. No, that's all garbage. Here's the problem. There's no way that Jason was stupid enough to like put this photo of himself right next to the body. Right, it's stupid. Right. Also, there's no way that the cops solved this mystery. It has to be the old people. It's the whole point of the novel. Okay. The, the Thursday murder club. That they one, solved the murders. That one I cannot argue with. <laughs> 
with in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Donna and Chris are fine as as far as they support the mystery, but I think they're there to chase a red herring. I yes. don't think that Jason is our culprit. Anyway, he's also the thug character, which as a tried and true method is never the thug character. That's right. They're always getting set up and I don't like it. I, I of course have to give you my my other thought, my other explanation. Let's you know, I'm gonna hear give it. it now. I was I'll forget. Here's the thing. I was wrong this whole time. Oh, I've been no. misled, bamboozled oh, by the Thursday Mystery Club, oh. Murder Club, Murder Club themselves. I promise I wouldn't get that wrong. Thursday <laughs> Murder Club themselves. Because the murder is, in fact, Joyce. She is the killer. Oh, and I'll tell you goodness. why. Let's she has stated that her superpower is that she goes unnoticed, mm-hmm. unseen through social situations, barely even on the radar. Are you and suggesting that for her not to be seen on cameras, that she is, in fact, a vampire? Possibly. <laughs> She possibly is a vampire. That's how she's lived for so long. That's why she's living in that old folks home. Of course. She's like, and she worked in banking. There you go. It all comes together. But yeah, so she looked quite simple. She, as a vampire, broke in under the cover of night into Tony Cohen's house, lying low, you know, using a superhuman speed, and struck him over the head with a wrench. And I mean, this, this, the photo follows the same logic of, of misleading the witness to somebody else. Uh, also, as she was a younger girl, she had ties to the mafia. That's Working right. in banking, she funneled funds to oh. to the crime syndicates. Of course, that's and it. Working it's all about in money. the mafia, it's been passed down in the family yeah, to her daughter. daughter. There you go. You're a genius. Well, that's there you go. Her daughter working in hedge funds. That's connected to money. That's right. I mean, to be fair, the murder of Ian Ventham could be done by anyone on the scene of the mm-hmm. crime. There, any of those sixty people, many of which do not get a name. Um. I'm going to tell you how many characters actually get a name in that crowd, and we're going to see if we can boil this down. <laughs> so here's the don't thing. list them all. I have them. the list. I'm not going to list them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the list too. So there's the, thir- the, the Thursday Murder Club. There's the cops. There's Father Mackey. There's the three Catholics. And then there's just a whole bunch of old people, uh, except for one character, because I don't think it's the three Catholics we've just been introduced to. There is, however, a veterinarian on the scene who tells us all about this drug, uh, this fentanyl, in the very next scene after Ian's death, mm-hmm. um, and also is known to have nursed the fox back to health and called it Scargrill, which means that they're a, a very skilled doctor, but not very professional. Yes. Also, we know that he's been super tired during the day. He doesn't sleep during the night, probably because he's out grabbing drugs from the nurse's drug storage and he's doing it to it's a protect penny you are accusing john john what's gray his face? yes penny's husband i because penny is the one who is comatose and she can't tell us anything she is the one who knows everything what and john's think, trying to protect her what do you think penny would know that's a good question this is the part where i i stumble because i i'm having a really hard time i think it's to do with that skeleton either the skeleton is like somebody that penny killed or like an, an ex-lover or something hold on like because she's a detective you're saying it's that, a dark secret you're saying that penny is a dirty cop and that this is all a cover-up for her crimes she doesn't have to be a dirty cop but i look i don't know my best guess is it they're like an old flame of pennies or somebody that they killed? Like, I, I don't know. This is the part that I'm kind of stuck on yeah, here. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's enough clues to figure it out, but that's, you know, we'll I, sure I, we'll find out. I cannot <laughs> say on the nature of clues. I think there's definitely enough there for you to solve it. The final question I want to ask you, Herd, Uh-oh. and I, I ask this fully aware that it may be an extraordinarily difficult question. Oh, great. Is that if you are pinning Penny and you have this theory about her. <laughs> Being a dirty cop, just to put it briefly, even though I know that's an oversimplification. Yep. 
do you think there's something we've heard in this story so far that actually relays that information? Because to me, when I look back at this story, there's no mention of a case particularly that Penny worked on. There's no mention of any troubles in her career. Like, aside from the skeleton itself and the potential of it being John because of him being a vet, there's really Mm. no motive to pin anything on Penny and what she would know in the story. This is the problem, right? I'm basing this theory of the fact that Penny can't talk. In my mind, if I'm writing a murder mystery, Mm. and I I mean, not even a murder mystery, there is a very popular Disney movie, or was it Pixar? Yeah, it doesn't matter. There's a very popular movie... Uh, that came out not that long ago about music, mm. uh, which involved a character that couldn't communicate. And lo and behold, they knew everything the whole time at the end of the movie. And that was like the big twist. Um, and I feel like in this story, that has to be the linchpin that we're like living and dying on. That this this yeah. lady who's seen as having no agency that's like taking the mm. willows or whatever, uh, they are the one like responsible or the one that knows everything. So yeah. that's that's really what I'm basing it on. The mm-hmm. actual motive is very difficult for me to to pin down based yeah. on the clues we've been given. The best thing I could probably pin it on, I know they were talking about at the very start of the novel, there was a case they were talking about that they couldn't solve, but I think that was actually one of Elizabeth's cases. I believe so. Like, and I think they were talking about a case that the club had picked up as a hobby thing, not yes, that any of them yes. had been involved in. That case, which I cannot honestly recall the details of, is probably the connection there. It was the one where they basically said the boyfriend did it. That was like all the detail we got. <laughs> the boyfriend is the boyfriend. Is the boyfriend John? Probably not. Oh my god! Are Wouldn't you saying that, that the first pages of the book are foreshadowing the ending? Hurts. I, I would get. Look, if I'm gonna pick anything, I'm gonna guess that. I'm gonna say that John is the boyfriend <laughs> from that first case. Oh, that's but crazy. I, that's crazy. Yeah, that's the closest mm. I can get. <laughs> yeah, I I will say to you now and to you listening uh, before you kind of continue reading that this book's mystery, I think, is genuinely difficult Great. to flesh out. Good. Genuinely hard. So I I encourage you to try your best. Uh, you may think that Herds is completely on to the truth, but uh, it, Look, it is- Look, self-admittedly, I don't feel confident about these these answers. Yeah, the the why a, in particular It is, is a very... difficult case to crack. Yeah. I am pleased with your effort, Good. at least, Thank Herds. You. Uh, you don't get a point, so get wrecked. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. I, Throw I, it in the garbage. Let's just be clear that I think if I had been trying to solve this book, I would have suffered. This book caters very well to your strengths as a character-focused reader. Yes. And I, uh, I, hope, I hope that it turns out well for you. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club, chapters 34 to 63. We will be back through to the end of the book next week on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. See you next time.